0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, what's it like to spend the night in a Tucson homeless shelter? Meet a local band that's setting true stories of border life to a danceable beat. And Christy DeShiel looks ahead to this weekend's Academy Awards and back at the Oscars' lack of diversity. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. On any given night in Tucson, more than 1,500 people rest their heads in the city's homeless shelters. They are there for many reasons. Refuge from extreme temperatures, a place to stay between jobs, or as a break from sleeping in the city's washes and alleys. Vanessa Barchfield recently spent the night in one Tucson shelter, the newly rebuilt Salvation Army Hospitality House on the southeast corner of Speedway and Main.
1: It's about 3 in the afternoon when I get to the shelter, and intake for the night has just begun. There are a handful of us on the women's side waiting to check in, a few of us who are here for the first time, and others already have beds and have called the hospitality house home for at least a few nights. This is a dry shelter, no alcohol or drugs, so step one to being admitted is a breathalyzer test. I pass and am sent over to a window to check in.
0: Okay, Vanessa, right? Yes. Can I get your ID, please?
2: Yeah.
1: I'm one of 30 women and 70 men that's going through this process today.
2: Initial here, now you know the rules. Welcome to the hospitality okay. house. Thank you.
1: The first thing you need to know about the hospitality house is just how nice it is. It opened last March and everything inside is still shiny and clean, even a little sterile thanks to the concrete floors and abundance of metal. The cavernous main hall is lined with windows that open into the men's lounge and the cafeteria. I head over to a large staircase that leads up to the women's area on the second floor. Hi. Hi. Are the beds back here? Oh, yeah. Thank you. My bed is a top bunk in the corner of the room. Over the next few hours, there's a trickle of people into the shelter.
2: My name is Andy Francis. and I've been There's in Andy,
1: who came here after he got kicked out of rehab. My name is Hannah Joy Myers. 23-year-old Hannah, who's been in and out of homelessness since she was a teenager. Hi, I'm Jonathan Goldberg. And there's Jonathan, who spent most of the day at the library. library. They call themselves the Hospitality House's clients. I spend some time in the women's lounge working on a puzzle. People come up and help me. Some watch CSI on TV, and others sit at the computer looking at their Facebook. A series of semi-incomprehensible announcements come on over the loudspeaker. That's a reminder for people not to hog the washing machine.
3: Luke, the desk. Thank you. And
1: that's Luke being called to the service desk. And at 5 o'clock, after everyone has checked in, comes the most highly anticipated announcement of the night. In case you didn't catch that, it's time for dinner. In the cafeteria, I sit down with Jim and his wife Angie. We eat huge bowls of chili topped with gooey melted cheddar cheese. It's rich and delicious and the perfect meal for a cold winter night between Bites, Jim and Angie tell me they've been staying here for about two weeks and are in the Sullivan Jackson program.
0: It's a reemployment employment program that kind of teaches you how to fill out an application with a little less gaps and a little more information so that you're more likely to get employment.
1: Jim's hoping to get a job with the construction company. And Angie says she wants to get back into real estate. I just want something permanent. They've both been out of work for a while, like a lot of people here, and really want jobs so they can get their own apartment. In the shelter, they're only only time together is dinner or breakfast. Otherwise, men and women are pretty much separated. I asked them what the most but difficult part of not having a home is. You know,
2: for everything
0: that people do on a daily basis, they never think of just the little things. You know, if you're out on the streets and your shoelace breaks, you just don't have a shoelace. There's no going and buying a new one, you know? And You don't for, always
4: have the chance to clean up for an interview or you know?
0: you're going for job offers or anything like that. You know, and it's like, What do you do?
1: After they finish their bowls of chili and double chocolate chip cookies, they say bye to me and then to each other. Back in the cavernous main hall, I run into the self-described class clown.
5: I'm the type of person that I like to make people laugh and smile. I don't care if I see somebody in a bad mood or anything, I'll I'll crack a joke or I'll make faces at them and everything. And I, I just try to keep the morale and, you know and these guys in here are upbeat and everything, so. Um,
1: could you introduce yourself to me?
5: Yes, my name is retired Sergeant First Class Clifford Taylor.
1: Clifford fought in the Army during the first Gulf War, and after he retired, got a job working in an AOL call center in Tucson. He met his great love and future wife. They had kids. Things were going pretty well for Clifford until 2007. He was arrested and convicted on three counts of armed robbery.
5: I didn't know what was going on. It was a friend of mine that was robbing these places, but because I was giving him a ride, he said that I was his driver. I was sentenced to 10 years. I did eight and a half off of that. And I was released on December the 18th. And
1: He's been here at the hospitality house since then. Wife, Clifford's wearing a green bathrobe over his pajamas and has one of those smiles that's bright and lovely and can't quite mask some sadness underneath. People have to leave the shelter between eight in the morning and three in the afternoon. How does Clifford spend his days?
5: I'm pretty much job honey. So, um, and with being a, an ex-felon and everything like that, you know, they, you have companies out here that say, oh, poor, yeah, we'll hire ex-felons, but when you do the applications and everything, it's, you know, it's hit and miss, you know, so. So you
1: haven't had any luck yet? Not yet. Clifford says he thinks people think who have houses that. don't really understand struggle how much that. of a struggle it is to be homeless.
5: They think that homeless people are basically street trash, so and that's not the case. We're all we're all hum, human beings that is going through a life struggle right now. So.
1: Clifford uses his jokes to help him through those life struggles,
5: but that's not all. I'm a singer as well too. So Really? What do you sing? Um I do R&B.
1: Can I hear something?
5: <clears throat> this is the song that I sang to my wife when she was walking down the aisle and it goes Mm. Things are kind of hazy, and my head is all cloudy inside. Now I've heard talk of angels, baby, but never thought. I would have what to call
1: my Down the hall, Pat Palmer is at her makeshift barber station, cutting an older guy's hair. She's been volunteering here a few nights a week for eight years. She can do fades and trims beards as well. It's something she's learned on her own and she thinks she's making a difference. A haircut is something that we take for granted. Even if we go to Supercuts for $5 or get a $50 haircut and And um, um, they like the attention. I think it's somebody to talk to. You know, you always talk to your hairstylist and your barber, I suppose. As the night goes on, I realize that Pat does a lot more here than cut hair. She hands out slippers and jackets. Basically, she tries to get people the things that they need.
4: Two pair enough for right now? Yeah. Okay.
1: Upstairs in the women's area, another great need is being taken care of. Laundry. When was the last time you did laundry? (sighs)
3: couple of weeks ago.
1: That's Tisha. You could use
3: my nickname, Tisha.
1: It's her fourth day at the hospitality house. Usually, she sleeps with her boyfriend and his dog in a wash. Dogs are not allowed in the
3: shelter. And we're not going to put her down just because we're homeless, you know.
1: Every few weeks, Tisha or her boyfriend will come here to take a break. How does she feel about being homeless? It sucks.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it's horrible, you know, especially when when it's cold out at night, you know, and it's you know, and, and sometimes I'll stay out with the dog and let him come in here, you know, so I can get a hot meal and bath and a good night's sleep. And when I'm out there by myself, even though he's got a big dog and she's a she's a well-trained dog, you know, a guard dog, um, it's still scary, you know, especially for women.
1: She says she feels better when her boyfriend's with her. They've been together for about a year, and she says if they can make it through this, they can probably make it through just about anything.
3: Imagine how it'd be if we had our own place in a house I and mean, you know. Yeah, because it is very depressing.
1: Tisha's done with her laundry just in time to head back into the dorm and get ready for bed. We change into our pajamas and brush our teeth with toothbrushes that the hospitality house hands out. And at ten o'clock, a staff member does a head count and switches off the neon lights.
0: Good night, baby. Good, good night, good
1: night. Or I should say dims them. The dormitory isn't completely dark. It's not completely (laughs) quiet, either. But eventually, we all settle down for a night's sleep. A warm room, a mattress, a pillow. Things that should not be taken for granted. I have vivid dreams, but they're the kind that vanished immediately upon waking up, which happens early. By 5 a.m. there's movement in the dormitory, showers, stuff being packed into duffel bags, locker door slamming. It's still dark outside when the loud speakers blare again. Time for breakfast. There's good strong black coffee and in terms of food?
6: There's a biscuit,
1: sausage and eggs. I'm sitting with Hannah whom I met yesterday. Hannah took a while to warm up to my microphone and now she really wants to tell me her story. I'm not going to go into the details here, but Hannah has been through a lot. She says her dream is to become a writer or journalist. I'm pretty sure she'll be able to do what she wants with her life. But how many people here will have a chance to achieve their dreams of getting house or the next job, being reunited with their families, or just staying clean? I don't know. Sooner or later, though, everyone I've met here will leave the hospitality house, some for the street, some with a roof over their head. And when they give up their beds, there'll be somebody else to take their place. It's 8 a.m. now and time for me to leave. My night in the shelter is over. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Vanessa Barchfield.
0: I'm joined now by AZPM producer Vanessa Barchfield to learn more about her story. Hello, Vanessa. Hi, Mark. So tell us, who provides the funding for Hospitality House?
1: The Hospitality House was rebuilt with donations from private individuals and organizations around town. It's run both with money from donations, again, and grants, and they also receive uh, federal funding through FEMA.
0: There were a lot of personal stories in your report. Was it difficult to get people to talk to you uh, during your night at the house?
1: At first, it was a little bit difficult. I didn't mention this in the story, but um, the clients there, the people who are spending the night, aren't allowed to have any electronics. They're not allowed to take their phones in or anything. And so I think a lot of people saw me with, you know, my, my recorder and headphones and were a little bit um, ticked off at first. <laughs> um, but eventually, word got around what I was doing. And people were, were quite literally sort of lining up to speak to me and, and share their stories with me.
0: We stated that about 1,500 people are seeking shelter in Tucson every night. Do we have a better idea, though, how those numbers break down?
1: So that number is actually from the 2015 annual point in time survey of homelessness in Tucson, which is conducted every January. Last year showed that there were 328 chronically homeless individuals in Tucson. Uh, Chronic homeless is a very specific category defined by the federal government. Um, People have to have a disability that includes either substance abuse or mental illness, um, PTSD, et cetera. They um, have to be living in a place that's not meant for human habitation or in a shelter um, for a number of days within a specific amount of time, it's a very uh, specific category. That survey also showed that there were 340 people under the age of 18 on the streets in Tucson, most of them were in shelters, and 285 veterans.
0: Do you have any idea how that count is actually conducted?
1: the annual count actually happened the day after i spent in the hospitality house so i went out with a group of volunteers the, the survey is conducted by about 200 volunteers uh, from across the city. They go out with clipboards um, that include survey questions. Where did they sleep last night? How long they've been on the streets? If they have any substance abuse problems, if they've ever been physically abused, things like that. That information is all kept anonymous, but it's it's collated by the county and checked for duplications. And then just the raw data, not the responses or the personal information, is then sent to the federal government and used to determine how much federal funding the city will receive for homelessness.
0: Well, one thing I wonder that doesn't come across on the radio is what were the age ranges of the people you saw staying at the hospitality house that night?
1: The youngest person in the shelter that I met was 19 years old. There were a few people who were sort of in their early 20s, a few of them I featured in this story, a lot in their probably 30s and 40s, but there were people all the way up into their 70s and 80s, um, a few people that looked like grandparents.
0: Well, thank you for taking the time to uh, report on this story and bring it back.
1: You're welcome, Mark. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Next, a profile of a Tucson band that's creating something new by combining musical traditions with true stories about life on the border.
6: This is Dimelo. I'm Sophia Pallisacchiar. Music often strives to tell a story to its listeners, Genres like country and folk often tell us stories of revenge, small-town nostalgia, or the man that got away. Cumbia band Vox Urbana takes that idea one step further with its Cumbia Corridos project. The Tucson Pima Arts Council awarded Vox Urbana a placemaking grant to write music and lyrics to evoke local Tucsonan experiences of immigration to the U.S. They partnered with Mariposa Sin Fronteras, the Southside Worker Center and the Florence Project in order to interview 10 people and turn their stories into song.
2: We just wanted to create a band or and have also a, create a space for people here in Tucson to celebrate and be together and also to create songs that had meaningful lyrics. My name is Enrique Castellanos and I play the guitar. Uh, my name is Jim Colby and I play keyboard and saxophone.
4: Vox Urbana is a is a cumbia Latin band from Tucson, Arizona. We are a fun party band.
2: Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a it's a
4: it's a cumbia band that's also become kind of like a like an art project as well.
2: We scheduled interviews according to the participants' schedules and time, free time. Mm. All of them were done in Spanish, and we just went and visit, visited them at their houses for a couple of hours. Sometimes we ate together. Most of the time, we were dealing with very, very difficult struggles about being a migrant, in, in undocumented migrant in another country. One of the greatest challenges was to not romanticize that story, to try to to be to be respectful, to be precise with it and for us it was also very important to for example create a story of a hero but that hero could be uh, a mom that's that's raising a family with two children with a minimum wage and she's doing all her best she can and she's a hero for, to us Carolina Lopez's uh, song was by far one of the hardest songs sometimes it's It could be very difficult to, to tell her story, to try to make it brief, but also explain so many battles that she won and lost.
3: I don't know if people know, but transgender women are the most vulnerable inside of detention and also in other places or countries. But they are not the most weak. We are strong. Mi nombre es Carolina López, soy una mujer transgénero Mexicana. I'm Carolina Lopez, soy a transgender Mexican woman. I'm part of the group Mariposas sin Fronteras in Tucson. LGBT it's a group that supports the LGBT, LGBT, LGBT community both outside and inside detention centers. De México. I was born in Acapulco, Mexico, and when my parents started noticing that I was different than my brothers, they started to hit and abuse me and I couldn't take it. I was living on the streets in Mexico City, and I had a sister who told me to join her in Phoenix. I was 12 or 13, and I said, yes, I wanted to go, so I did. I heard that the United States was a country where you can be more free and be who you are, but it's the same. It's a little bit more free than Mexico, but if you're not legal, you're in a bad place. (inaudible) (inaudible)
5: Enrique
3: <inaudible> <inaudible> was interested in hearing my story. He wanted to know how I lived in a detention center and how I crossed into the U.S. He asked me if he could make my story into a song. I thought it was going to take a lot more time than it did. I loved the song. I liked it quite a bit. I heard it, and I'd like to get my hands <inaudible> on it. Carolina.
2: Hoy también, como ayer, yo contemplo mi pasado. Today, as yesterday, I contemplate my past because it has given me wisdom. For good or bad, I've seen glory. I've seen suffering. My name is Carolina, and my body tells a story.
6: For more on Vox Urbana and their Cumbia Corridos project, check out their website, cumbiacorridos.com. To learn more about DimeLo, go to DimeLoStories.org.
0: DimeLo is part of a national initiative called Finding America, presented in collaboration with AIR, the Association for Independence in Radio, supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The 2016 Academy Awards air this Sunday. Amid the usual buzz surrounding the show, is a growing outcry for the awards to become more inclusive, especially when it comes to recognizing the work of artists of color. Here is film essayist Chris DeShiel.
4: There's controversy at the Oscars again. For the second year in a row, no African Americans have been nominated in any of the major categories. There have been calls for a boycott, and the Academy has responded by promising changes that will promote diversity. But in my view, the Academy Awards are not the real issue, or rather, they are symbolic of a much greater failure, and that is the lack of diversity in the American film industry as a whole. There just aren't that many opportunities for black directors and screenwriters. And although we see more black actors and actresses nowadays than we used to, it's still relatively rare to see one playing the leading role in a studio film. Outside of those starring Denzel Washington or Will Smith, films starring African Americans are generally relegated to the category of what are called urban films, even when they make lots of money. This brings up another aspect of this issue. The content in most of the films reflects a narrow societal view, namely white male. If the vast majority of executives, producers, directors, and writers in the industry are white men, the result is a product that tells the stories of white men. It might help to briefly examine some film history regarding race. One of the great ironies of cinema is that the one picture that signaled a dramatic breakthrough for film technique and for the movies as an art form, D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, released in 1915, was also a film that perpetuated a myth that the post-Civil War Reconstruction era was a time when Southern whites were oppressed by corrupt and rapacious blacks. And who were the heroes that come to the rescue and restore freedom to the South in this film? None other than the Ku Klux Klan. People have said to me, well, you have to understand the times in which that movie was made. Yes, but also understand that there were protests by the NAACP and others. 2,000 people rallied in Boston, for instance, demanding that the movie not be shown. Tragically, the huge success of The Birth of a Nation coincided with a dramatic upsurge in Klan membership, and violence against black people. Now jump ahead 25 years to Gone with the Wind, winner of 10 Academy Awards and, up until the 70s, the highest-grossing film ever. It, too, perpetuated the myth of reconstruction as a bad time. More subtly, and not as the subject of the film, but quite definitely, particularly in a scene where a seedy-looking northerner is promising a group of ex-slaves 50 acres and a mule. There were no protests of Gone with the Wind, In the quarter century since the birth of a nation, Jim Crow had settled in as the accepted way of things, and this 1939 film could simply assume white supremacy as the norm, rather than make a conscious argument for it, as Griffith had done. Hattie McDaniel was the first African American to win an Oscar. It was for the supporting role of Scarlett O'Hara's loyal maid in Gone with the Wind. At the Academy Awards, which are held at a whites-only hotel, she was made to sit apart from the rest of the cast at a small table in a far corner of the room. Hollywood has always lagged behind social change. When the civil rights movement was in full swing, the movies pretty much just had Sidney Poitier as a stand-in for that whole issue. He was the first African-American to win an Oscar for best actor. Since then, there's been some progress, but its slow pace shows us that Hollywood, like the rest of society, still has racial barriers built into its structure. People make the mistake of thinking that it has to do with personal prejudice But the best intentions don't necessarily affect change in the structure of an institution. The pay scale, the hiring practices, or where the profits go. So when I see controversy about the whiteness of the Oscars, it reminds me of the Confederate flag controversy. The flag symbolizes a past that we need to repudiate and get beyond. It has to go. But then there are those who will say, well, we got rid of the Confederate flag, so we're done, right? No, That would be confusing the symbol for the larger reality. Change involves work, persistence, struggle, awareness. In the same way, we won't make the Oscars diverse unless the film industry itself becomes more diverse. Hopefully, though, the controversy over the Oscars will bring more attention to this issue so that real change can occur. Finally, at the risk of shifting too abruptly from a serious topic to a trivial one, I feel the need to mention that my Oscar predictions have all been correct the last two years. So now I feel obligated to make them. Let's just say that if you choose Leonardo DiCaprio, Brie Larson, and The Revenant in an Oscar pool, I don't think you'll regret it. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShiel.
0: You can find more about the 2016 Oscars at azpm.org in the first edition of the podcast, Let's All Go to the Lobby. Film essayist Chris DeShiel and I are joined by filmmaker Robert Loomis and photographer and film fan Pamela Sentman for a fun, open-minded discussion about movies from any era and any country. You're invited to join in the conversation by posting your comments. Let's All Go to the Lobby will also be available on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. Welcome back, Peter. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.